turn with me now in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. I'm going to read briefly from Revelation chapter 19, just verses 11 through 21, verses 11 through 21. This will provide us with a little bit of context for our sermon passage. This morning's sermon is from Psalm 58, that ordinarily would be preached on the first Lord's Day of the month, particularly the first Lord's Day of the month of June, as Psalm 58 is our Psalm of the month for June. But I'm not here next Sunday. I'm out west. I'm on sabbatical. So this morning we will look at Psalm 58. But before that, let's read from Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, let's begin with verse 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in white linen, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people. Free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast. The kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured. And with him, the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with a sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Amen. And amen. To put this vision in a little bit of context, you have to remember that John is alone on an island in the Mediterranean. And as nice as that may sound to us, it's not a vacation. John is alone on a deserted island where there is little food. He is hungry and he is lonely and he is imprisoned. He is not free to come or go as he would wish. And it is in that incredibly powerless and oppressed position that John receives from God this vision. And you can imagine for a moment what this would be like for John who is perhaps in that situation the most feeble, the most weak, the most powerless human being on the planet. He is lonely, he is hungry, he is abandoned, he is on an island by himself, 
it looks like the Roman Empire has won. And the Holy Spirit rolls back the clouds, opens up the heavens, and shows John this sight and says, Oh no, Rome has not won. Jesus has won. Jesus has won. Jesus is winning. Jesus will win. With that in mind, turn back to Psalm 58. As I mentioned before, our sermon this passage this morning comes from Psalm 58. This is the Psalm of the Month for the month of June. Psalm 58. It is again a Psalm of David. It is again a Psalm pertaining to that time when David was being persecuted by King Saul. Psalm 58. Here again, the word of the Lord. To the chief musician, set to do not destroy, a miktam of David. Do you indeed seek righteousness, you silent ones? Do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? No, in heart you work wickedness. You weigh out the violence of your hands in the earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf adder that stops its ear, which will not heed the voice of charmers, charming ever so skillfully. Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them Flow away as waters which can run continually. When he bends his bow, let his arrows be as if cut in pieces. Let them be like a snail which melts away as it goes, like a stillborn child of a woman, that they may not see the sun. Before your pots can feel the burning forms, he shall take them away as with a whirlwind, as in his living and burning wrath. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. So that men will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. Amen and amen. In the festering swamp of Emin Wheel, Frodo and Sam have caught the creature Gollum. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Everybody in America knows what I'm talking about, right? Well, the movie got it wrong. I'm talking about the book. And in the book, they've caught the creature Gollum in the swamp. And Sam is making a rather reasonable argument for why they should immediately execute Gollum. But Frodo is debating. He is now judge and he must decide whether to take the life of Gollum. And with his sword sting outstretched, Smeagol's life hanging by a simple thrust of the blade, all of a sudden inside of Frodo's head is the words, the voice of the past. The voice argues internally with him. He deserves to die. He ought to die. He is dangerous. He would harm us. 
But as he works through the logic, at last Frodo hears a voice from the past that whispers within him, Do not be eager to deal out death in the name of justice when you fear for your life. You see, as humans, we are so prone to confuse self-interest with justice. As humans, we perpetually think of self-preservation as righteousness. And Tolkien wisely warns us to be cautious when it is our lives on the line and to be slow to judgment. In like manner, David in Psalm 58 reminds us that we are not suited for the role of judge. None of us. And instead reminds us that we need a new judge, a different judge, a good judge. In fact, Psalm 58 teaches us this morning, we need Jesus to be our judge. Jesus is the judge you need. That is the good news for you this morning. I know it's a frightening, scary psalm. Lots of metaphors and imagery that just don't sit well with our polite American culture. And yet, all of this imagery is pressing us to this very good news that Jesus is the judge you need. And so this morning I ask you to rejoice in Jesus' justice. Now let's look at this very timely text together. Notice in verses 1 and 2 that David begins with two rhetorical questions which he then answers himself in verse 2. He begins by saying, Do you indeed speak righteousness, O silent ones? There's a little bit of irony here, a little bit of a bite to this question. Do they speak righteousness when they are silent? No, of course not. They're not speaking. They're silent. Therefore, by definition, they are not speaking righteousness. He asks again, Do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? This question is less obvious, and yet David again responds in the negative in verse 2. He sees among all the humans, that's what he means by that phrase, you sons of men. He sees among all the humans, no one who judges uprightly. To use Paul's language, no, not one. David looks around and sees silence from earthly tribunals. They do not speak justice. They do not give verdicts and sentences that are just. Indeed, they say nothing. And in their silence, they are complicit in the injustice of the world. In fact, David goes one farther. In verse 2, David argues that they are silent in the courtroom, refusing to hand out a sentence of justice because they are secretly working within them schemes of wickedness and evil. They are silent in the courtroom because they themselves are plotting to do evil. What is more, in verse 2, they are hoping to weigh out violence with their hands on the earth. That weighing out is a judicial term. David looks at the courtrooms of Israel, and he sees no one. No one speaking justice. They are all silent. Everyone instead is scheming and laboring to do evil. Humanity is bereft of just judges. David historically is probably thinking of that time when he was persecuted by Saul. 
You guys may remember the stories from 1 Samuel, the teens and the 20s, after he's killed Goliath, after he's won Michal, the daughter of Saul as his bride, David is forced to flee from King Saul. These are the topics about which David sings in Psalm 56, 57, 59. So it makes sense that Psalm 58 would be about the same topic. It's in that collection, David fleeing from Saul. But what is more, this seems less about Saul and more about the elders and judges of Israel who do not appear even once in those stories in 1 Samuel. Isn't that stunning and tragic? All those stories where the king of Israel is seeking unjustly, wickedly, to destroy his most loyal and devoted servant David. And in between the two of them are all the princes, all the judges, all the elders of Israel. And all of them are silent. And none of them defend David. And none of them resist Saul. This is perhaps what David sings of. In which case, my friends, we have a psalm we need. Did you hear Tom's prayer? He took us rather painfully on a tour of the problems in this world. Have you seen the injustice in the news? We look all around the world. Entire nations and continents riddled by injustice. You know, we don't have to look that far, do we? We can look right here. Right in the good old U.S. of A. And we say, where's the justice? And we pray with the prophet Amos. Let justice roll down like a river and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What a timely text. We look at humanity and we say, where are the judges? And where is the justice? Why is all the world silent in the face of such wickedness and such evil? We need someone else. We need a judge, but evidently we can't find him among humanity. David, in verses 3 through 5, gives us two reasons why. Why is humanity so devoid of just judges? Why is indeed the kingdom of Israel, the church of the Old Testament, the covenant community of God's people, likewise devoid of justice? Why can't the elders produce justice? Verses 3 through 5. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. David's first explanation of this incredibly unjust situation is that humans by nature are sinners. We are estranged both from God and one another from the womb. This is an easily illustrated fact. How many pregnant mothers have been punched in the organ of your choice? Sometimes that's just a crowded little baby looking for some space. Sometimes that's a selfish little sinner trying to punish mommy for making him share space. The reality is, is the Bible teaches that we are selfish and sinful in the womb. Mommies here can say, yes, I have felt that. In like manner, David says, it's not just moms who have seen this. They go astray as soon as they are born speaking lies. How many of you taught your children to lie? 
How many of you remember very vividly the first time that kid looked you in the eye and told you the exact opposite of what you knew to be true? And something just died inside. As you hopefully realize, there's that little sinner I have made. We come into the world sinful and selfish. Estranged from God and one another. Going astray as soon as we are born. As soon as we can, we come out into the world grasping and greedy. Our nature is fallen and defiled. Verses 4 and 5, David adds to this that not only is the nature corrupt and sinful, but it is a deadly corruption that is not responsive to antidote. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. It is this poison that surges in the veins of society, that surges in the arteries of a family, and kills human relationships. The reality is, is we're not just abstract sinners who sin in thought. We're sinners who sin in deed and in word, who destroy relationships, who destroy our love and our community for one another. We have sin that poisons others. What is more, deaf cobras with stopped ears, not listening to the voice of charmers, charming ever so skillful. One of the joys of being in this position on Sunday morning is that as I preach, I get to see the world's most skillful charmers whispering to their children in the pews. The question is, is will the children respond? Will they listen to mother? Will they listen to father? What is more, we see them go out into the world, into the classroom. Will they listen to the skillful charming of teachers? Will they listen to the skillful charming of preachers? Some are more skillful than others. Some are more charming than others. But in either regard, the truth is hitting the ear of the sinner. The truth is hitting the ear, but not the heart. There is a deafenedness to our humanity. David says the reason we look around the world and we go, where's the justice? It's because our humanity has fallen. We are sinful. We are incorrigible. We do not respond to correction or counsel or wisdom. We have such pride. We resist even our parents, our teachers, our preachers. And we press and press into our sin and our selfishness. David, in this way, has teased out our imagination. We need somebody else. We need something else. In fact, we need a new human, a different kind of human. We need a human capable of judging justly because he is born or conceived without a sin nature. We need a human who is not estranged from God in the womb. We need a human who is born not going astray. We need a human in whose mouth are not poison, but life. We need a human who has ears to hear and a heart to submit. We need a human who comes into the world praying, not my will, your will be done. This is what we need in a judge. A human without sin. A human without selfishness. Where can we find such a human? David can't. He looks at all Israel, the finest on earth, God's own people. And he says, I I, I can't find anyone. Solomon, his son, will come to the same conclusion in Ecclesiastes. 
I can't find anybody. And so David turns to the only one left. God. Do you see that beginning in verse 6? Instead of appealing to any human judge, because he cannot, all human judges are corrupt by nature. Lord Acton once observed, you guys have probably heard this line, power corrupts, tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. He has one little problem with that. We actually begin corrupt. Power just gives us the ability to express our corruption. This, my friends, is what David teaches us. We need a new humanity. We need a new human to come and play judge. And so David turns to God to solve this problem. Beginning in verse 6, David supplies, trots out this litany of metaphors that communicate how he is going to make room in the world for this new judge. You see, in order for a judge to come, there needs to be a bench or seat unoccupied. There must be a dethroning of these worldly powers. And so David begins his petition to God, his appeal to God, come and deal with this world of injustice by vacating the positions of power. Notice verse 6. Break their teeth in their mouth. Now, the teeth in the mouth of the serpent. You guys notice that in verse 4 and 5? The metaphor was a poisonous serpent. So when David in verse 6 says break their teeth, he means break out those poisonous fangs. Now what does a serpent without poisonous fangs do? Nothing. It slithers away. It's harmless. In like manner, David says, Lord, break out the fangs of young lions. That is, make them harmless. Make them unable to prey upon others. Take away their weapons and their destruction. Verse 7, let them flow away as waters which run continually. I love this picture. Have you guys seen flood water in spring? When the snows melt and the rivers and creeks come raging down the hillside, flush with all this fullness, you know what happens to all the rocks and trees on the bank? They fall and they go. They tear through the landscape and carve out a path. David says, pull the plug on their flood. Drain out their water so that they run away harmless, hurting no one. Thirdly, he says, when they bend their bow like a mighty warrior to take the life of their enemies, let their arrows drop to the ground like pieces. You guys have seen those great cartoons where the guy pulls out the bow and arrow, stretches it out, and the arrow just kind of drops on the ground? That's what David's praying for. That this strong, skillful warrior will suddenly find himself unable to bend his bow. Suddenly find himself without arrows to shoot. Make him harmless. Make him unable to hurt others. He says in the fourth place, let them be like a snail which melts away as it goes. Now David knows that snails don't literally melt. What he means is that let them disappear like a snail, leaving only a thin trail of slime behind them. This is his concern, that they would depart not like William Tecumseh Sherman from Georgia, leaving this giant swath of burning buildings and dead bodies behind him. No, don't let them depart like that, Lord. Let them depart like the snail, where there's just a tiny little shred of slime to mark where they were. Make them harmless. Make them unable to hurt. 
Lastly, he says, make them like the stillborn child of a woman, that they may not see the sun. In this prayer, in this metaphor, David again longs for their harmlessness, that they would hurt no one. Inasmuch as he prays, Lord, take away their power to hurt. Lord, take away their strength to destroy. Here he prays specifically, Lord, why don't you do us one better? When they get into the office, have them arrive stillborn. Remove their power before they even start hurting. I love actually this metaphor in our own American experience. Lord, let them spend billions of dollars on advertising, calling in every political figure over a six-year period. And when they have amassed all the wealth and power of America and have launched themselves into the pinnacle, the White House, let them find that they are powerless to do anything. Let them arrive in the Oval Office like a stillborn baby, powerless, impotent. This is David's prayer. Lord, you have to intervene. God, you have to come down. There is no human around who will judge justly and rule over these wicked rulers who refuse to judge justly. In their silence, they are accomplices. In their words and actions, they are culprits. And in all this iniquity that is being spilled forth from their seats of power, Lord, you and you alone can answer and reply. David appeals to God. And now we have this tremendous segue. He wants God to be the man. We need a man, a human, to come and judge and rule over humanity. But he asks God to do the job. Come and vacate the power of all other people. Notice also in verse 9, David adds one more metaphor. He wants God to do it quickly. Before your pots can feel the burning of the thorns, he shall take them away as with a whirlwind, as with his living and burning wrath. I know some of you do. How many of you love camping? How many of you have actually cooked a whole dinner on a campfire? That's the metaphor here. When you have lit the fire and the wood is burning and roasting and the coals are glowing and gray... Before the pot can feel the heat, come sweeping through the campsite with a fire, with a breeze, and put out the fire. Before these unjust judges can cook up something really awful, get them out of here. Put out their fire. Make it so they can't actually foul up this place in which we must live and abide. David is asking for a hasty response from God. That God would come in a hurry and with his wrath and with his burning and living fury drive out the strength of the wicked and remove them from office. David is asking for a quick and just response from God. And then in the last part, David sees the response. He sees first the problem. We have a humanity drenched in sin, incapable of judging justly. He sees the solution. We need God to come down here and be our judge. And so David then concludes with a twofold response. In verse 10, the righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. Verse 11, 
so that men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. That first metaphor in verse 10, we don't like it. It's uncomfortable. The image in verse 11, that's a little better. We're okay with saying all those humans who in, chapter, in verses 1 and 2 were unable to bring forth a single just judge, now will recognize and openly admit there is a judge, and his name is God. And he will judge all the judges of the earth. And he will bring forth a reward for the righteous. He will do what is good and just and right. This makes sense to us. This sits well with us. What a happy Hollywood ending. God will answer David's prayer. He will come running down onto the earth. He will swing out his big sword and say, Sit down, little judges. I'm king. And they will sit down. They will submit, and God will be king and judge over all. But we cannot skip verse 10, as uncomfortable as it is. Let me submit to you that you don't like it for three reasons. Well, perhaps some of you do like it, but let me suggest that those of us who don't like it, don't like it for three reasons. Number one, we don't live in an ancient Near Eastern Hebrew warrior culture. We don't kill people for a living, not most of us. We're fairly remote from the idea that a human being might actually grab us body and thrust a blade into us. We don't live in this bloody, battle-saturated world that David lives in. So the metaphor feels awkward in our otherwise polite society. But secondly, this metaphor feels uncomfortable to us because we miss the richness of true justice. Too many of us live in a luxurious middle-class life in which injustice consists of being cut off on the highway by a slowpoke. In which injustice consists of having the wrong creamer in our coffee. Because so many of us live in a world with first-world problems in which injustice is this big, we think justice is this big. But those who have even this week seen injustice and felt the terror and the fear of evil and sin. They look at verse 10 and they long for it. The third and final reason I suggest that we don't appreciate this vision is because we don't understand who it is. It is Jesus. Notice the singular pronouns. The righteous one will bathe his feet. This metaphor refers to the victor walking across the battlefield in triumph. It does not mean bathe or wash as in to sit down and to delight himself in the circumstances. No, it refers to the ancient practice of needing to get off the battlefield by walking through the blood of the defeated enemies. It was the only way the victor got off the field. This is Christ. This is Jesus Christ who has risen from the dead and he is strolling triumphantly and victoriously through the defeat of all his enemies. 
Do you remember those serpents whose poison is surging through the veins of our society? Do you remember those lions whose fangs are tearing the flesh of our friends and family? There's only one person in the Bible who is called a lion and a serpent, and his name is Satan. And on that first Sunday morning when Jesus strolled out of the grave, he walked across the battlefield and surveyed the carcass of Satan and strolled through the blood of our enemy. He is dead, my friends. He is a poisonless adder. He is a toothless lion. Because Christ has risen from the dead and walked triumphantly through his blood. He stepped up out of the grave and there at his feet on that glorious Sunday morning were all our sins, which had so long shackled and chained us, condemned us and shamed us, soaked in guilt, soaked in death. And there they all are at the feet of our Christ, dead. Because he has won. Because he is alive. Because he has triumphed. David understands in this world of gross and incessant injustice that whenever we see the news that we this week have read and seen, we need to see again the empty grave and the empty cross. And we need to remember that story as they reported it in the news is not the end of the story. There is a Christ who has put sin to death. And there is a Christ who has put death to death. There is a Christ who is alive. And we should rejoice. For he is the judge we need. There's one little piece that I skipped over. Those of you who have sat under 57 sermons through the Psalms with me know that I seldom skip the subtitle. I didn't skip it today. I saved it for the end. There's something very important I want you to understand about this psalm. It says that it is to the choir master. This is a psalm for the choir to sing. You are God's choir. We no longer have Levites in robes slaughtering animals. We now have the saints of the living God singing in every assembly the world over. You are the choir. But I am not the choir master. And today's presenter is not the choir master. Jesus is the choir And this beautiful psalm of justice belongs to us who believe in Jesus. Because he is the judge we need. The judge who has come down to earth, looked upon you and said, condemned. And then accepted the sentence upon himself. He is the judge who condemns himself for your sake. He is the judge who stood silent. In the courtroom of Caiaphas and Annas and Pontius Pilate. He is the judge who submitted himself to the most unjust judges who have ever lived. He is the judge who surrendered himself into the hands of wicked sinners to experience the world's greatest injustice. He is the judge who has sought out the estranged and the astray and brought them back. He is the judge who has drunk the poison of the serpent to its bottom and perished with our sin coursing through his veins, condemned for our crime. He is the judge 
who has heard the charming of his father and his spirit, and who whispers to you this day, I am your judge, and I declare you just. He is the judge you need, because he is the judge who has accepted your punishment for you. He is the judge you need because he is the one who has defeated Satan, sin, and death. Jesus is the judge you need. Rejoice in his justice. Rejoice in his justice. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful day. A day overshadowed by so much sorrow. A day saturated with so much sin. And yet a day where we, like John, have the Spirit of God pulling back the heavens and through Psalm 58 showing us what's really happening in the world. All we see, Father, is sin and death. But we, by faith today, have been shown in your word there is more. There is salvation and there is love in Christ. Oh, Father, we thank you that you have given us the judge in our flesh who suffered our sin. And that you have given us Christ that he might rule over us, judging us justly, destroying forever our enemies, that in his grace and in his pardon and peace, we might live forever. Oh, grant us sweet joy today, for we have seen Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen.